Remember, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you take this time and make it meaningful. Take this time and give us eyes to see the things not seen that we may understand your word, that we may be transformed by it for the ages. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Last time we were together, a couple of weeks ago, we began chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. And this chapter involves a very famous event. It involves the event of David and Goliath, one of the most well-known stories, accounts, events in the Bible. It's known to the Christian and to the pagan, to the believer and to the unbeliever. It's often used as kind of a, a way of describing an underdog's victory over someone that you never thought the underdog would win against. You know, people use it like when a ma and pa shop win, wins a uh, a big project, a bid on a big project, and they beat out a Fortune 500 company, for example. Or when a, an underdog sports team beats the, the reigning champion basketball team. Or when an underdog military beats a huge military, like the 13 colonies, former colonies, beating the most powerful military in the world at that time, the military of the British Empire. Things like that. That's how the world often uses the story of David and Goliath. And it's true that this event involves an underdog beating a champion, little David beating Goliath, but the event is about so much more. The real conflict in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel is not between David and Goliath. It's not even between the Philistines and the Israelites. The true conflict in chapter 17 is a conflict between the gods, between the God of Israel and the gods of the Philistines, Goliath will appeal, will call upon his gods, the Philistine gods, and David will appeal to the God of Israel, whom he calls the living God. Now, the name living God means that the God of Israel is alive and the other gods are dead. The other gods are no gods. The other gods are worthless, impotent nothingness. That's what the title living God means. It's contrasting the one who is alive versus the one who is non-existent, the ones, all the others who are non-existent. But the title living God means more than that. It means that. It describes the God who is, but it also describes the God who in human events to do His will and to bring glory, majesty, power, authority to His name. The name, the living God, means that He is the one to be feared. It means that He is the one to whom we must come to with awe and reverence and respect or to use the language of the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's so much packed into that title, living God. He's the one who is, 
And he is the one who demands absolute reverence. David's slaughter and humiliation of the giant is recorded for us, not so that we will be wowed by David, but so that we will be wowed by David's God, so that we understand that nothing is too difficult for the one who is, for the living God. David's victory over Goliath is a victory of faith. It is a victory of faith over fear, faith in the invisible God, as opposed to fear in the with respect to the visible giant, a giant who is incredibly powerful among men, but a giant who is totally powerless before the living God. It is the object of David's faith that gives him great courage, that gives him success in the face of impossible odds. So let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. We saw a number of these verses last time, so so the, the first few verses through verse 11, I'm going to move pretty quickly through. And then we'll, we'll slow down in the next, in the, starting with verse 12. Verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephestamim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Here on the screen here is the valley of Elah. It's a little tough to see, but um, you can see the, uh, the, the valley here. In you have the, uh, thank you, you've got the two hills. It's still a little tough, but you've, you've got two hills on each side. And so when the text... The text will refer to mountains, and really it's a way of saying, there we go, it's, thank you, it's a way of saying, you know, think of hills. So the valleys in the middle, each army is camped on one of the hills. There's a, um, at that time, there's, there's kind of a creek that goes through the middle, a ravine that goes through the middle, and uh, thank you, and, and um, each army is camped on each side of the valley. Verse 4, Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. As we saw last time, when you convert the cubits, a cubit is about 18 inches. When you convert that to inches we're talk, or, or feet, we're talking about a colossus of a man, a giant of giants. It's nine feet, nine inches. So he's almost 10 feet tall. That's over four feet taller than the average Israelite. The average Israelite's about five foot two or so. The giant has, in addition to having this intimidating stature and height, he's got incredible weapons. He's got state-of-the-art weaponry. Look at verse 5. He has a bronze, hel- bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. The giant's armor weighs 125 pounds. It weighs the weight of a small adult. This is the, the magnitude and the power and the strength of this colossus of a man. Look at verse 6. He also had bronze greaves on his legs, meaning shin guards on his legs, and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. So between his shoulders, in other words, it's on his back, so he would reach back for the javelin and pull it out 
to, to use it as a weapon. Verse 7, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield, car- shield carrier also walked before him. Everything about this warrior, about this soldier, is intimidating. His height, his armor, his weapons. The writer of 1 Samuel wants you to have a full picture, a full image of the soldier that little David is going to go up against. Goliath knows that he is intimidating, that his presence, that his power is intimidating. He is confident that he can destroy any man that Israel sends out. Look at verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. This was common practice back then. Each army would designate a champion. You kind of minimize your losses that way. Each army would send out a champion, and the two champions would fight to the death. And the champion that won, their army was deemed the winner. And so the other army automatically was deemed the loser because their champion was killed by the other champion. In verse 8, Goliath calls the Israelite army the servants of Saul. Do you see that in verse 8? The servants of Saul. It's true that the Israelite army serves King Saul. That's true. But ultimately, they were the army of the living God. They were the army of the God of Israel, the God whom Goliath ignores, the God whom Goliath mocks. Because when Goliath mocks the army of Israel, which he will do over and over, he's really mocking the God of Israel. Goliath neither recognizes nor respects that God. Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The Hebrew word for afraid is the cow stem of the verb yara, which means to respect or awe or to fear. When you fear someone, you submit to that one. And the scripture often records God's warning. Do not fear the other gods. In other words, don't submit to the other gods, which is another way of saying don't engage in idolatry. God frequently warned the Israelites, don't fear the other gods, the no gods, the fiction, the worthless gods. The living God alone is the one who is to be feared. Psalm 38, 33 verse 8, let all the earth fear Yarah, Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. But what's occurring is that the anointed of God, King Saul, and his troops, they're not fearing the Lord. They're not fearing Yahweh. They're fearing the giant. They're fearing Goliath. They're in awe and respect of his presence. They respect his presence and his power more than God's. And so no one is willing to challenge the great giant Goliath. This is a sad, pathetic scene for the armies of the God who is. 
for the armies of the living God, the God of Israel. And this scene cries out for another. It cries out for someone new, someone who will fear God more than he fears the giant. Look at verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. Just stop there for a second. You see that word Ephrathite? Remember the prophecy that we studied not long ago, Micah 5.2. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth one who rules Israel, who is from long ago, who is from the days of Olam, from eternity. Ephrathah, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathite. It's referring to a clan, the Ephrathites, the ones of the clan of Ephrathah. So you have a tribe, then you have a clan, then you have a family. It kind of goes in that order. The tribe of Judah, the clan of Ephrathah, a very small clan. And then you have here the family of Jesse, who is an Ephrathite, who is a descendant of Judah. And so the little town of Bethlehem was associated with the clan, the little clan of Ephrathah. And so sometimes it, it could be referred to as of Ephrathah, as, as the town of Ephrathah, or the town of Bethlehem, because the name of the clan and the name of the town are connected. That's what you're seeing here with Ephrathah. Keep, keep reading in verse 12. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men, Jesse is too old to go off to battle, but his sons are not, so he sends his boys out to war. Verse 13, the three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and the second took him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. We've seen these names before. We saw them in chapter 16 where Samuel went to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, and they go through the sons, and Samuel says, bring this one next, next. Nope, 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 nope. You got any more sons, Jesse? Yeah, there's that boy who's out there in the, in the field, tending the sheep. We'll bring him. We're not going to do anything until he comes. And so these are the sons, the names of the first three sons that we saw in chapter 16. And, of course, in chapter 16, Samuel ultimately anoints David, not any of the older ones. David's the youngest. Keep reading in verse 14. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. David is too young to fight. He's a youth. His duty, at least at this point in his life, is to tend to his father's sheep in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about 15 miles east of this battleground. So it's about the distance from here to Stonewall. 15 miles east of where the, the armies of the Philistines and the Israelites are gathered, that's where, that's where David's from. And so David is running back and forth from the battleground back to Bethlehem. Verse 16, The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David, his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. An ephah is a unit of measurement. So uh, a significant amount of grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Verse 18. 
Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand. And look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines, Jesse says to his son David. Jesse assigns to David the task of a messenger. And his messenger task involves two things. Task number one, deliver the food to your brothers and to their commanding officer. Back then, the way an army would be fed is either by living off the land or by food that your family and your friends would send to you, would provide to the soldiers. So that's task number one of the the young messenger boy, David. And task number two that his father gives him is find out what's going on at the battle and come back and give me a report. He especially wants to know about the status of his sons. Verse 20, So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. So what's happening is each of the armies, they come down from their hill and they meet down closer in the valley and they start yelling at each other, right? They're mocking each other. They're each saying, I'm going to get you. You're going down. They're mocking, challenging each other with their words. But what happens every time they do this is at least for the army of Israel, it fizzles. It fizzles. Because out from among the Philistines comes the Colossus of the man. And when he speaks, the Israelites melt. They melt away. All their bravado is gone when the giant shows up. Verse 22, Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words. And now we see something different. And David heard them. David heard them. For 39 long days, the same pathetic scene has repeated itself over and over and over. Each army gathers in formation and they taunt each other. Goliath comes out and taunts the Israelites. Is there anybody who's willing to fight me? Or are you cowards like you were the day before? That's, that, that's essentially what the words of the giant are. The Israelites in the face of this giant have no response. I mean, the response to the giant's words are crickets. Crickets, nothing, because they all fear the giant. They respect the giant more than they respect, more than they approach with awe the living God. Fear and discouragement has gripped them over and over for 39 days. Not even the tall, impressive king of Israel, King Saul, is willing to go out and fight. And so when you think that everything is lost, when you think that There is no hope. That's when God shows up. And here God shows up by bringing his little messenger boy to the battlefield. 
God on the 40th day moves events because what we're seeing here is the providence of God, how he moves the events. So on day 40, the little youth by the name of David hears the giant's words. He hears the giant's taunting. On this 40th day, God brings his servant to the battlefield, his servant who was a nobody, his servant who was a shepherd boy, his servant who was a messenger boy, but this boy trusts God. And so before the day is over, God will make this nobody a somebody, a somebody who will be remembered forever, a somebody who will be talking about 3,000 years later on the other side of the planet in Fredericksburg, Texas, before this day is over. The entire Israelite army is paralyzed with fear. Verse 24, when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him. Saw Goliath, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. There's the word again. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? The you here in, in, in Hebrew is, is, is plural. It's a y'all. It's not that the men, the soldiers are talking to David. They're talking to each other. They're saying, have you seen this giant, this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. Surely he is coming up to defy, meaning to to challenge Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. What's happening there? What we're seeing is that no one wants to fight the giant. No one wants to fight the giant. And so Saul has to sweeten the pot. Saul has to give incentives, rich, significant incentives. Number one, money, a lot of money, great riches. You see that phrase there in the verse. Number two, he's gonna offer, he offers up his daughter as a wife. That's a big deal because you're, you marry the daughter of the king. Number one, you're going to have a position in the king's court. You're going to be almost tantamount to a prince. And number three, there's exemption. You're going to be exempt, meaning exempt from taxes, exempt from military service. This is a generous, generous offer from the king. And guess how many takers there are? Gusek. None. Because they're no dummies, right? I mean, they think to themselves, okay, that's a generous offer. Those are all nice things. But I'm not going to be able to enjoy any of those things if I'm dead, if the giant kills me. They think that way. I say they're no dummies because they're thinking in a way that is from what they can see and touch and feel. They're not thinking by faith. They're not walking by faith. They're they're walking by sight. And so they're going to let the dummy David do it. At least that's the way they perceive him. Because he wants to do it. Uh, uh, okay, we're not going to do it. But if you want to do it, hey, that's okay, whatever. That's how these events are going to play out. Of course, I'm being sarcastic when I say dummy. Of course, David is the one who walks by faith. And it's the rest of the army who's not walking by faith. David has a very different perspective than everybody else. Verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the, the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that taunts the armies of the living God? You see, David's response is the opposite. 
David's response to the words, to the challenge of Goliath, is the opposite of every other Israelite soldier, and he's not even a soldier. He just happens to be there on the battlefield because God has moved events so that his servant will be there to deliver some food and to take a report back to Jesse. Everyone's heart is filled filled with fear at the presence of Goliath, but David was emboldened, emboldened at the presence of Goliath. Goliath. He is emboldened to vindicate the name of God. At some point in young David's life, David had heard and believed of the promises of God. Somebody taught him. Perhaps they taught him of the promise that God gave to his ancestor Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 3. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse David, of course, is a direct descendant of Abraham. You see the, the, the line here for David. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashan, Salmon, Boaz. Remember, Boaz marries Ruth, the, the Moabitess. They have a child, Obed, Jesse, and now David. Maybe Jesse told his son David, about Genesis 12, 3. Maybe Obed did. If we're really speculating, maybe, maybe Ruth, his great-grandmother, did. Now, you know, David is the youngest of all the sons of Jesse, so the likelihood that Ruth and Boaz are still alive, his great-grandparents, it's not that high, but it's possible. Someone teaches David about the promises of God, and David believes He calls Goliath this uncircumcised Philistine. Why does he call Goliath that? What is the sign of the covenant? The sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. That's right. It's circumcision. And there is a man here who is mocking the God of the covenant. David uses a term of derision to describe the Philistine. He calls him the uncircumcised Philistine. The giant has cursed God's people, and so God will curse the giant. And he'll use this little boy, this teenager, to do it. In verse 27, the Israelite soldiers answered David's question. Look at verse 27. The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. So the soldiers tell David about the king's offer. You're going to get riches, you're going to get his daughter, and you're going to be exempt from service. David's older brother now injects himself into the conversation. Verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? He thinks David is just... He just tends to a couple sheep here and there, and he's abandoned his sheep. We've already seen that David secured the sheep, secured someone who would tend to the sheep while David was gone, while David was obeying his father. But Eliab judges David wrongly. Keep reading. I know your insolence, Eliab says, and the wickedness of your heart. Eliab is saying to his younger brother David, for you have come down in order to see the battle. He's accusing David of just wanting to come and see a show. In those days, the battle was the show. 
right? I mean, they didn't have cable TV, right? They didn't have radio. And so often people would be on the outskirts. You, you see pictures of this, like with the Civil War. You'll, you'll, you'll see people with their wagons close to, it, you know, when pictures started to, to just show up, Civil War pictures, you see people with their wagons there to observe the conflict. This is what Eliab is accusing David of. You're just coming for the show. Because Eliab, to use the, the language of Jesus in the first part of Matthew 7, remember what, what Jesus teaches in the first part of, of Matthew 7? Don't judge wrongly. Be careful how you judge, because the way you judge, judge it's going to be judged of you. This is what Eliab is doing. He's judging David wrongly. He calls him insolent. The Hebrew word there for insolent is the idea of overconfident, presumptuous. Eliab doesn't see that David is trusting in the Lord's power. He thinks that David is an overconfident punk. This is, this, this is the, the gist of what his older brother is, is, is slinging at David, who is simply asking a question. Eliab's position is, we're the soldiers. We're the soldiers. You go back to your sheep. This is men's work here. Go back to the, 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 the area where you shepherd in Bethlehem. Really what's happening is Eliab is convicted by his younger brother. Eliab has cowered in the camp for 39 days like everybody else. David arrives, and within a matter of minutes of him hearing the taunt of the giant, he is driven to defend the name of God. Eliab is projecting onto David his own wickedness because Eliab calls David wicked when it is Eliab who is acting wrongly, who is judging wrongly. Verse 29 But David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. Everybody confirms this is what the king has said. If you take out the giant. David informed his brother that his brother was wrong. And then he just keeps on trucking. Because nothing will stop David from vindicating the name of God. Not his brother, not Saul, not the giant. Verse 31, when the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Notice how respectful young David is. Before the king, he calls himself Saul's servant. He doesn't mean it the way the giant, the way Goliath uses the term. He's using it, David is using the term, the servant of Saul, as a term of respect. You're the king. I'm not here to to outshine anybody. No one wants to go up and fight the giant. I'm not throwing tomatoes at anybody. But I want to go fight the giant. This is what David is saying I'm willing to do it. He's not casting aspersions on everybody else whose heart is fearful. He's just saying, I'm willing to do it. In verse 33, we see Saul's response. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go 
against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior since his youth. The Hebrew word here that Saul uses for youth is the word na'ar, which means adolescent. As we've seen, David is probably in his late teens, 17, 18, 19, somewhere around there. To Saul, the idea of a teenager going up a up against a seasoned man of war is absurd. It's ridiculous. From a worldly perspective, Saul is right. Saul's assessment is accurate from a worldly perspective, but from a divine perspective, Saul's assessment could not be more wrong. Saul continues to live by sight and not by faith, so he doesn't consider the possibility of divine intervention We know from chapter 16 that the Spirit of God has already left Saul and the Spirit of God has come upon David mightily to empower him. David will not be stopped. Look at verse 34. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. This is the second time that the young boy has used the phrase, armies of the living God. It reveals David's faith in the invisible one. It reveals David's faith in the word of God. Verse 37, and David said, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David trusts that God will empower him to do the impossible because that's God's business. That's what God has already done in David's life. I don't know what's more impressive, that David will kill a giant or that David kills a lion and a bear. He doesn't do it with a rifle from 200 yards away. He does it with his hands. Now, we don't know what the weapon was that David used. Was it a rock? Was it the the weapons of, of a shepherd? Right? The weapons of a shepherd are basically two weapons. It's the staff, will be referred to as the stick. It's the staff which is used not only to guide the sheep, sometimes they have the hook on them, to guide the sheep, but it's also used to keep a a sheepdog in line, and it's also used as a club. So David could have used that against the lion or the bear. He probably didn't use the other weapon of a shepherd, which is the sling. The sling is is not like like, like a wrist rocket, the, the sort of, sort of slingshot that we, that we used when we were kids to shoot a tree or something like that. The slings back then were two strips of leather, and at the end of the leather is like a cup, a, a leather cup, and you, you, you park the rock in the leather cup. And there are two ways to do it. There are images of the soldiers, because they would include the soldiers, the sling soldiers in the army. One way is to do it this way where you're swinging your arm vertically and then you sling the rock. The other way is to do it horizontally over your head and then you sling the rock. But the, the weapon of the sling 
is not just a weapon for a shepherd, but it's also, as we will see, a weapon that armies used for their soldiers. David probably didn't use the sling with the lion and the bear because these are close-up encounters, close-up combat with these predators of predators. David tracks the lion and the bear. He hunts them. He attacks them. And then he saves the sheep out of their mouths. Why? I mean, just let the sheep go, David, right? I mean, don't put your life at risk for a sheep. Of course you do that if you're a shepherd. Or to use Jesus' language, Jesus' words from John 10, 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, for the sheep. David willingly, gladly risks his life for his father's sheep, because this is his responsibility. We don't know what kind of weapon he used, but we know that, it is that, that God empowered him to do these incredible things of killing a bear and a lion. Whatever weapon it was that David used to kill the lion or the bear, even if it was his bare hands, God enabled him to do the impossible, the thing that it's difficult to even imagine a young boy doing something like that. David trusted God to empower him to do the impossible with these animal predators, and now he trusts God to empower him to do the impossible with a new predator, with the giant. David trusts God to empower him to do his duty to protect the flock, but this time it is not the flock of Jesse. It is the flock of the living God. Keep reading in verse 37. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. This is both sad and funny. It's both pathetic and humorous at the same time. It's sad and pathetic because Saul shirks his duty. He's the tallest. He's the strongest of all the Israelites. We know that from his coronation in chapter 10, where his stature is described there. But he's unwilling to put his life at risk to defend God's flock. So he says to a boy, God be with you. Go with God. Vaya con Dios. In Spanish, go, God be with you, to the boy, because I don't want to do it. In fact, none of the soldiers want to do it. But if you want to do it, we'll bully for you, David. Go for it. This is a pathetic scene because Saul shirks his duty. But it's also a funny scene. I mean, you've got little David, probably average height, 5'2", 5'3", and he's got the big man's armor on. I mean, the armor of the largest man in Israel. Huge armor. You know, imagine like a, like a five-year-old walking in daddy's shoes or wearing daddy's clothes, just kind of hanging on David. This armor, the helmet, it says it's a bronze helmet. It's like, remember the, the description of, of Goliath? He's got a bronze helmet. So you're going to put this bronze helmet. You know his head just barely fit in that thing. It's just kind of bouncing back and forth. 
He's got all this. He's got the sword. David says, no. That's not for me. You know what I need? I need my God. And I need the weapons. The weapons that my God has given me before. The weapons of a shepherd. I don't need all that stuff, Saul. So he takes all that off. David says, I will fight this predator like I did all the others with the weapons of a shepherd. Verse 40, he took his stick. This is the shepherd's staff, David. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Can you imagine the adrenaline that is running through the veins of this young teenager? It's not that David doesn't fear Goliath. Surely he feared Goliath. I mean, it's like Joe Pesci going up against Shaquille O'Neal. Plus another foot and a half above Shaquille O'Neal. Surely David feared Goliath. He's human. It's just he feared God more. He respected God more. He approached God in awe. The giant was awe-inspiring. It's just God was more awe-inspiring, the invisible God, the living God, to this young teenager. David's trust in God steadies his mind and steals his mind for combat. So he carefully and methodically selects the appropriate rocks, aerodynamic rocks, rocks that will land in a fatal fashion into the forehead of his enemy. The sling was a common weapon back then that both shepherds and soldiers used. Here you see a relief of the Assyrians. If someone doesn't mind turning off the light here for a minute, uh, you see a relief of the Assyrians. The Assyrians, this is a relief there in their capital, in Nineveh. The, you, can, you can just barely see the, the, the slings. These are Assyrian soldiers. You can tell they're Assyrian soldiers because of their beards. And the, you see their sling, and, and, and these are soldiers that are, that are depicted as kind of the, 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 the vertical sling, where you, you sling it next to your body. And this is, this is just a way, what, what, what ancient peoples would do is, is with their conquests, if they had, had won a great, a great uh, conquest, what they would do is they would go back home, and they'd, they'd create a relief. They'd, they'd create something that they would etch into the wall. That's what they did there because the Assyrians had great military victories. And they had in their army these soldiers of slingers. Soldiers who would, who would uh, use slings as a very significant weapon. A very precise weapon. David has relied on God to enable him to prepare for battle. He's ready for combat, and the giant responds to David's approach. You see at the end of verse 40, David makes the first move. You see that at the end of verse 40, David approaches the lion, the lion, the giant, the giant. All the other soldiers of the Israelites, David's not even a soldier. He just happens to be there because God has moved events, so he's there. All the other soldiers of the Israelites are cowering, but young David 
steals his mind for, for battle, and he approaches the giant. Now we have the giant's response in verse 41. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The giant is offended. The giant is offended that the Israelites would send a boy. I mean, do you disrespect me that much that you send a boy? He knows he's a boy because he doesn't have a beard. Right? His beard hasn't come in yet. Maybe he's 17. Maybe he's 18 because the Israelites had their beards. Do you disrespect me that much that you send this boy as barely through puberty to come attack me? This is, this is the idea of, that, that is being communicated by the giants. God uses David to prick the giant's pride in his overconfidence. The giant is now vulnerable. To use the language of the old King James from Proverbs 16, 18, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Look at verse 43. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Because David comes with his staff. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The word here for curse is the Hebrew word kalal. It's the PL stem of that verb. It's the same word that God uses in the covenant. In Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will kalal those who curse you. I will curse those who curse you. This, as I said before, is a conflict between the gods. It is a conflict between, a war between the gods. Goliath calls on his Philistine gods to curse the descendant of Abraham, David. So David calls on his God the living God, to curse the giant. David calls on the God of Israel to fulfill the covenant because God has given the promise of the Abrahamic covenant and David, young David, the teenager, believes it. Verse 44, The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin but I come to you in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Hebrew for the Lord of the armies. Then David says, which army he's referring to? The God of the armies of Israel. Sometimes Yahweh Sabaoth means the armies of the angelic realm. Sometimes Yahweh Sabaoth refers to God as the commander-in-chief of the angelic armies, which are led by Michael the archangel we know from the book of Revelation. But here in this context, Yahweh Sabaoth refers to God being the commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel. It's not King Saul who's the commander-in-chief. It's Yahweh Sabaoth. David says, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day Yahweh will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know, Ki yesh Elohim la Yisrael, that there is a God in Israel. 
and that the assembly may know that Yahweh does not deliver by sword or by spear, by spear, but the battle is Yahweh's and he will give you into our hands. The young teenager wants everybody to know that this is God's work, that this is God's victory, that this is God's battle. This is very important for the teenager to identify because this is not a miracle. God is not going to do a miracle. This is not a miraculous killing of the giant. This is not a miracle that David kills the giant, that the little 5-2, David kills the 9-9 giant. That's not a miracle. Because a miracle in the Scripture is that which defies the laws of physics. A miracle is that which countervenes the normal order of events in nature like a virgin giving birth. That's a miracle. But taking a stone and slinging it into the forehead of a giant, that's consistent with the laws of physics. That's not a miracle. No, it's spectacular. And there's no question that God empowers David to do it, but technically it's not a miracle because it's consistent with the natural realm. It happens in the natural realm. That's why the Assyrian army had a whole slew of men who slinged rocks. It's important for David to identify to everybody, to the Philistines, to the Israelites, this is not my work. I don't want you to be confused to think that I'm such a good slinger, that I'm so impressive that I killed the giant. I want everybody to know that this is the work of God. But this is the work of the living God, the God of Israel. That's why David's words are so important here. God will use the ordinary, the utterly ordinary, to do the extraordinary. God will use a nobody and make him a somebody. Verse 48, Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. I bet they did. This is a rendition of what this must have looked like with young David here over a headless Goliath holding this colossus of a head in his hands. Because what you would do in ancient times if you wanted to humiliate an enemy is you would cut his head off and you would take the head as a trophy, which is what young David would do. He's going to take the head with him to display the work of God. Not so that everybody is impressed with David. That's not the reason for the story. It's so that everyone is impressed with the Lord of the Armies who David speaks of so many times in this account before he kills Goliath and takes his head 
as a trophy. The prideful giant is now a headless mockery. Robert Chisholm is right to see the connection between Goliath and the Philistine god Dagon. They both fall in the same way. You remember back in chapter 5 when the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant and they took the Ark as as a trophy and they displayed it in their temple. What happens to Dagon? Yeah. First Samuel chapter 5. Just turn over there to First, Cham- First Samuel chapter 5. First Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. First Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When the Ashdodites, the Ashdodites are the Philistines who live in the city, the Philistine city of Ashdod. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of Yahweh, as if the god of the Philistines were worshiping Yahweh. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again, where we got to pick you up again. You're such a weak god. We got to pick you up and put him up. Verse 4, but when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground. That's the same phrase. That's the same phraseology that we're given with respect to the giant, to the nearly 10-foot giant Goliath. He falls on his face on the ground. You read here, here in, in, in Chapter 5, fallen, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Forgive me for stating the obvious. God wins. Every time, God wins. And God will not be mocked. In our great foolishness, we mistake God's patience. We mistake God's mercy for weakness. God wins and God will not be mocked. Today, God has used his servant David to vindicate his name, to display his great glory. And this is just the beginning. It's just the beginning for David. Father, we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you that you have recorded your word, that we may study it, that we may be impressed by it, that we may be awed at what you do through your servants. We ask that you challenge us by it. We ask that you challenge us to be like your servant David, to approach you in fear and wonder and awe that we may exercise the same level of faith as a David to obey you in a world that hates you, to serve you in a world that despises you and your word. Give us courage. Give us power. Help us to speak the truth in love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.